Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner, your trusty co-hosts on this show. And it's the two of us having another excellent conversation with you today. Last week, we talked about the 17 most common questions we've heard in all of our history of working with infinite banking. And we actually um, hopefully did not mislead anyone. We said we were going to cover 17 and we only covered seven because there's so much to say. So, <laughs> so we're back to finish this as a part two. And so we are going to have two episodes that really compactly put together all of the most common questions, objections, concerns, you name it, whatever we have heard about infinite banking that really just sits on people's mind and doesn't make sense or makes it hard for them to move forward. Now, I want to make sure that you are getting your question answered. So for any reason, if we are not covering something that is really a pressing concern on your mind, specifically, as you're in this journey of figuring out what you want to do with infinite banking in your own life, because let's face it, you wouldn't be watching this video if you weren't interested in implementing somehow. And so if you are interested and there's a question that you want to ask, please jump in. You can comment on the live feed on Facebook or on YouTube. We'll catch your question and hopefully get you a response during this episode. Or you can always comment afterwards. You can email us. You can uh, reach out to us in some way and make sure that your question is asked and we'll answer it either during an episode, today, another time, or to you directly and personally. So before we really jump in, um, <clears throat> I think we'll just really I'll cover what we said last time, um, just so you guys have a little bit of a framework, and we'll refresh on what exactly privatized banking and infinite banking even means. But Bruce, is there anything top of mind to you before we do that? No, I just think that uh, when people listen to these types of episodes or shows or uh, topics, they need to think of it in, in a simplistic way, not trying to and not trying to overcomplicate it. Um, I think that's from the history of not only what we've done, but from uh, listening to other podcasts. I think that's the best way to go about trying to decipher this information. Absolutely good. And that actually makes me wonder if <clears throat> there is a little bit of a danger in bringing up all the concerns that other people have, that maybe those weren't on your mind and you had no doubts about them in the first place. but we're bringing more, um, not doubt, there's a word I'm looking for, but more investigation into your mind as we're covering these topics. And I think that's not necessarily a problem because you, if you're going to move forward with infinite banking, we believe that you need to have a strong knowledge about what you're doing and feel really good about it. And so maybe there's a question that really wasn't a concern to you. And now today you're getting an exposure to that idea as well and being able to resolve that in your mind, because as you resolve confusion, you're able to have confidence and move forward. Yeah. I don't have a problem with any uh, exposing people to anything because I think the more they understand, the more committed they are to the process. Um, so I think this is great. Awesome. All right. Well, let's do two things. First, what is infinite banking? This is in the tightest nutshell I can possibly give you. Infinite banking is a process. So it's a strategy and a product together. This is a product which is specially designed whole life insurance that has high early cash value. It's a dividend paying policy with a mutual company. And it's specially designed for two things. One, to give you early cash value that you can use and also to give you the most long-term growth. So that is the product. The strategy is using the cash value growth inside of your policy, borrowing against that capital, which means that you are using other people's money, OPM, borrowing against your cash value, collateralizing your cash value, and putting those dollars to work in something else at the same time. Usually when you put this into an opportunity, you're looking for arbitrage. There is a cost of capital. You're paying a loan to the, or you're paying interest to use a loan for the life insurance against your life insurance 
cash value. And at the same time, you want to earn more than what that cost of capital is in your outside investment. So that's just a really compact, tight way of explaining what is infinite banking in case you're completely confused. We wanted to bring you a little bit up to speed on that. And the next thing I want to share before we jump in today is this is what we covered last time. We'll make sure we link over to last week's episode. We covered what if I don't like whole life insurance? We covered what if I don't need insurance? We covered I think I could get better returns in the stock market. We covered I don't want to lose access to some of my cash right away, which tends to be a big hang up and hurdle for many people. We covered what if I already have a policy, but I'm not sure it's a good one. We covered, I've heard you always need a certain policy design, but different people say different things or different amounts. That's also something we hear very commonly. And then we covered, I don't want to overpay. Now, I do want to make a quick comment on the last one that I did not say last week. And the idea of overpaying on a whole life policy that is designed in this way would come in terms of looking at your cash value amount and how much premium you're putting into that cash value amount. And so if you think, well, I could have structured my policy design differently and had less base premium and more paid up additions so that less cash is required as I go forward in paying for this policy in case I need to just pay base premium only. And my, because I have less base premium, and I have more early cash value than anything that has a higher base than that is overpaying. So I don't know if I've said that clearly, but there can be this concept that if I put too much base premium into a policy, that means I'm overpaying for the amount of cash value I'm getting. And that is just simply a misnomer. Really what we want to think about is it's not about putting in too much cash It's not about having too low of an early cash value in, say, the first year or the first two years. What we really want to do is make sure that you're getting the best of everything, stepping back and getting this big picture view at how much early cash value do you have plus how much long-term growth. And that's a balancing act. There's simply no way to say, well, I put in too much premium for the amount of cash value I have access to in year one. It's a bad policy. That's just not the case. Bruce, is there anything you want to say about that? I just wanted to make sure we at least um, talked about that briefly. Yeah, I find it interesting that you you can't overpay because the insurance um, costs are the same, whether it's PUA or base. One is just guaranteed for that uh, for the entire life, so you're going to continue to put premiums in it until you decide to stop putting premiums in. PUA uh, premiums are actually a one-time premium so that you know you're not going to get any more of the cost of insurance for that particular uh, portion of the death benefit. And I know that may come out to be very, very confusing, but the bottom line is the cost of insurance is the same. The lack of liquidity, which is what you were asking about, yes. is, is not truly a cost of insurance. It's a cost of you setting up a long-term banking process. And... <clears throat> We've talked about this not only last week, but uh, also on different shows, is that in order to set up a banking process or set up any business, there is a long-term focus that needs to, to happen. And that, and that long-term focus, in this case, is somewhat of a lack of liquidity in the first four to seven years, depending on how uh, your design is. So uh, very good points. All right. So if you want any more on those ideas, please go back to last week's episode, which we'll put a link in, but this is available on YouTube. It's on Facebook. It's not yet live on the podcast channels because that's a delay of about four to six weeks right now. So next we're going to talk about, I am stuck comparing illustrations. Bruce, isn't this your favorite concern? Well, it's not only my favorite (laughs) concern, but it's everybody in the industry's favorite concern. Um, (laughs) I should say everybody in the industry because there's some people that actually enjoy and and claim, oh, look, my illustration is better because 30 years from now, look at X and what Which, they, what is X? Dividends, right. cash value, death benefit. It could be anything, right? <laughs> Correct. And those particular people do not understand that 
illustrations are simply a snapshot in time today based on today's dividend stated dividend rates. That's all they are projected out until the end of the contract. There, it does not take in consideration any changes in interest rates, will, which will have an effect on future dividends, both positively and negatively. Mm-hmm. It just so happens we're in one of the lowest in interest rate environments in the history of our country. And I definitely could say this, we're in the lowest sustained mm-hmm. interest rate in the history of the of our country. And so to think that the illustration is going to remain the same for the next 30 years, not even to mention the next 50 or 60 years, um, is pretty naive. So illustrations from any of the major carriers are all going to be within a small percentage of the same, depending on how they are actually applying their dividends. But remember, these are projected dividends. And then uh, I've stated this before, but I'm going to continue to state this is most of the base dividend is projected on not only the base amount, but on the death benefit. The calculations from these major carriers uh, when they project a dividend is the base premium plus um, a proprietary formula on the death benefit. So the higher the base the uh, base premium and the higher the death benefit, as interest rates go up, the dividend paid will go up in proportion to those two. So if you have lower base premium and interest rates increase, you're going to have lower future dividends. Mm-hmm. Not only are you going to have lower future dividends, you're going to have a lower compounding of those declared dividends. Because once dividends are declared, they're guaranteed. So then any dividends that are paid out in the future will be paid out on higher compounded dividends. And this makes an this historically makes a huge difference. Even when interest rates have moved from 5% to 7.5% or a 50% increase, it has been shown historically that dividends will increase the three or 400% of the projected illustrated um, illustration on a projection. So if you believe that interest rates most likely the only thing they can do is go up in the next 30, 40, 50 years. If you want to have the most efficient way of design, then you must look at a higher base dividend. And frankly, the last thing I like to say about that is the other thing I think that they ignore over and over and over on illustrations is the amount of death benefit, permanent death benefit, not the death benefit, that is projected by PUAs, but the guaranteed permanent death benefit. Many people, and, and you and I are not afraid to say this, and, and the best people that talk about IBC are not afraid to say this. The death benefit is very important. It may Absolutely. not be important. It may not be important to you now, but it will be important to you into the future. I guarantee that as you change. And that, that comes back to our insurance gives you peace of mind. Uh, conversation that we've had on many, many, many occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, so just uh, think about that as you're looking at illustration. Yeah, I think what's really interesting, and I'll just um, share this for maybe some of our listeners who are not as familiar, an illustration is what you get before you buy a policy. It is a list of numbers, it's multiple pages long, and it is a projection. So Bruce said this, I'm just reiterating, I am not saying something different than he said, this is a projection. This is saying you're standing here on this timeline. You're standing at today's date, March 10th, 2021, or whenever you're looking at this illustration. And it is projecting what is going to happen in 2022, 2023, 2024, the future that has not yet happened. And those projections can not ever be exactly what will happen. And the reason is that you have your guaranteed interest rate, you have your non-guaranteed dividends, which have been paid out on a regular basis with all the companies that are good and reputable and the companies that we use. But the dividend can fluctuate 
And Bruce is talking about this. Right now we're in a low interest rate environment, which pushes dividends down, which means the illustration shows that low dividend carried forward into the forever for eternity going forward. And we know that if dividends come up, the numbers will change. And so when we look at an illustration, it is, I've heard it called before, and I just will use this term because I think it locks it into our mind. It is vapor on paper. What that means is a, a an illustration is a projection of what they think is going to happen. Now you might be saying to me, Rachel, that sounds ridiculous, especially because you talk about life insurance, especially whole life insurance being guaranteed. So how can I not trust this paper that is an illustration? And so there's a, a challenge uh, to navigate that. And really what you need to be able to understand is that yes, there's a guaranteed minimum interest rate on the guaranteed side of a uh, whole life policy illustration before you've lived this policy. It's the illustration. What happens though, is that the dividend is never applied to any one of those years. It could It's usually 120 years going forward from today's date into the future. The dividend does not show up on the guaranteed side of the illustration. The dividend is only on the non-guaranteed side. But here, think about this. In year one, if you get a dividend, that now becomes applied to the guarantees of year two which means that the guaranteed cash value and the guaranteed death benefit amount are going to be improved from what you see on an illustration. So when you look at an illustration on the guaranteed side, it's actually showing you the worst case bare bones situation if no dividends were ever paid in any year of your entire policy, which we know is not going to happen. So that's the challenge with looking at an illustration. It's almost like saying, well, you know, we think that Dividends will never change. Interest rates will never change in the whole entire future of this policy for the next 120 years. And based on that information, which we know is going to be false, that they'll never change. Based on that information, policy A or illustration A outperforms illustration B in year 100. That does not even make sense. So what we're saying is that you don't want to look at which one has a little bit higher dividend, which one has a little bit higher cash value. Those things are projections. They're not the reality of what's going to happen. And ultimately, this is something, Bruce, you say all the time. The main way to simplify this is that we can't get caught up looking at an illustration and saying, let's compare all of the fine print and figure out which one I need to get into because you're wasting precious time that you should be in a policy already because it doesn't work for you if you're just thinking about putting it in place. It only works for you once you start actionizing and using it. Will it be the absolute perfect policy on the planet? We won't know until 100 years from now when you're using that policy. And at that point, you're going to sure wish that you had it in place as opposed to didn't. All right. So we've got some comments going on here. Bruce, is there anything else you want to say on that before we move on? Okay. We've got some comments and uh, I want to just hit these briefly because we want to come back. We have still a lot of ground to cover in the next 40 minutes. So thank you for your comments. Thank you for watching. I think most of these are on YouTube here. One, um, thanks a lot. Does it matter which company you you use? I can't say that. Company you use. Is there a specific company you recommend? Uh, Bruce, do you want to take that? Because, well, go ahead. Yeah, I don't, any any uh, mutual life insurance that is participating, participating means that uh, they actually pay out dividends. Um, that is um, very well, uh, has very good financials and there's something there's financial rating systems that uh, are out there. And if any of these companies have, we believe any of these companies have an, in the 90 or above Comdex rating score are companies that you should use. We're not saying mm-hmm. that you can't be successful with the ones that are lower than that. But what I find, what I found through my research <clears throat> from attending conferences, <clears throat> excuse me, from attending conferences, the companies that are sitting on high amounts of cash actually have higher Comdex scores because the rating agencies know they have a lot of cash to, imp- to not only pay their death benefits, but to deploy at the right amount of time for their, uh, for their personal investments, not the personal, but corporate investments in mm. the insurance company. So we tend, to, we tend to use companies that have a lot of cash. And I, this is a whole nother show, but um, we, we actually tend to like uh, companies that are also smaller in nature, not that they're small, but smaller in nature 
because they actually understand and embrace infinite banking concept. So companies like um, Lafayette Life and Penn Mutual um, have embraced these and fit the other financial um, qualifications that we have. We have also used a couple of other ones in the past for a variety of reasons. But we've also dropped some of them that we have used for a variety of reasons because their customer service wasn't as good or their financial ratings actually have dropped. So once again, I think what Rachel has already said is it's not really important which company you use um, because there's a lot of really good, highly rated companies out there. But I would pick the ones that have a lot of cash on hand, have great financial um, uh, ratings, and they also have they understand the infinite banking concept and actually embrace it mm-hmm. and that those tend to be the smaller ones the bigger behemoth companies yes the, you can actually design it as an agent and you can put it through but the customer service people don't understand it so we've had people call in and say i want to take money from my banking policy and, and they're like you don't have a banking policy well that's true because that's an actual strategy that's mm-hmm. not the product Yes. The smaller ones actually understand the verbiage that people are using. The smaller ones tend to have better customer service so that when you you do need your cash in the form of a loan or a cash return, you get your money a lot more quickly than some of <clears throat> excuse me, some of these bigger companies. So that's those are the ones that we tend to embrace. Good question. All right, so I'm going to jump back over. We still have uh, about four more comments to get to, but I'm going to jump back into our list here just for the sake of time, and we'll go back over to your comments momentarily. So please keep them coming. If we don't get a chance to get to them live today, we will answer them in another show. All right, so next, um, this is number eight on our list of seven, or sorry, number nine on our list of 17. I could get better growth in an IUL. Now, this um, is something that we've heard very commonly as well. And I'll just, I want to comment real briefly on this. And then Bruce, I'll let you take it from here if you want to. Um, yes, you could potentially get better growth in an IUL. Now, I said could and potentially. I did not say you will. <laughs> what is interesting is that, again, you're looking at an illustration and on an IUL illustration, there's a lot of things that are unseen. And one of those factors is something called a blended term rider. Bruce, is that correct? Uh, well, nope. I'm not sure what you're asking about. Never mind. Okay. I actually, maybe I'm saying the wrong term, um, but there's a increasing cost of term insurance inside of the IUL product, which makes it a little bit more challenging because you have to have growth that supersedes that cost of term insurance. And if it doesn't, you are running the risk of not having that perform the way you want it to. Yeah, I would I wouldn't call it blended term. I would just say that That actually all, blended term was not correct. That goes to yeah, all something these, else. Correct. All the all these all these permanent insurance whether it's whole life, IUL, VUL, um UL, they're all they're all actually based upon a term insurance cost because those costs are in inside the policy. You know, there's these people that say, "Oh, you should buy term because invest a difference." That's what all these other ones are. You're actually buying Term insurance, it just happens, the term just happens to be for your entire life, and you're investing a difference um, in savings vehicles, you know, uh, guaranteed type vehicles. Um, hey, listen, this, this is like, I don't even know if we need to talk about this much more. This is like app, comparing apples up to oranges. Um, have I sold some IUL policies in the past? Yes. I have not, I have not done it for banking purposes because. There, there's not guaranteed size, although some people are going to say, wait a minute, there's guaranteed lapses uh, in the contract. Yes, but there's not guaranteed growth. And then some people come back to me and say, yes, but you can't lose your money in the policy. And I come back to them and say, no, technic- that, that technically is correct. You cannot lose money based upon the stock market going down, mm-hmm. but your cash value can actually go down because you can increase the fees needed within the policy to pay for the hedging strategies so that you do not lose money due to the stock market going down. So this is very, uh, very common misconception with a person. Well, I can't lose any money in my IUL. You can't lose any money based upon the stock market going down, but you can lose money every year that the stock market doesn't go up by increased fees in the contract. 
And here's the here's the last thing I, I just like to say about this, because I don't think we really need to expand on this much more <clears throat> because there are some zealots out there that say, you know, you have to use this. Um, and there's and I would say to them, go ahead and use it. Uh, it's not going to perform potentially the way you think it's going to perform. All you have to do is look at the illustrations in the contracts. You can look at an illustration the whole life and it will be 13 pages. That same design or as close as you can get to that design in an IUL will be 50 pages. Why the difference? Four times more pages? It's because All the, caveats. The, con the contract language has to say we have shifted the risk from the insurance company onto you in an IUL. So you accept the risk in that particular, in a whole life contract, the, the uh, language says the insurance company, we're accepting the risk because we're giving you a guaranteed side. So it's that simple. It's a shift of the risk. If you want to take the risk on, read the 50 pages of risk and take those risks on, but that means that it's an investment. If you want it to be a savings vehicle, then look at the 13 pages and say, I want to shift the risk to the insurance company. The one last thing that I'll bring up on this is that if you look at a life insurance illustration, the guarantees are not a guaranteed growth rate. It's a guaranteed cash value dollar amount. And that's really something that you can hang your hat on because a guaranteed minimum growth rate in an IUL policy, even if the floor is, well, the minimum growth is 1%, it depends on 1% of what. It's not giving you an actual cash value amount that you can rely on. All right, so let's go to the next one. This is number 10. I could use my home equity instead of starting a whole life insurance policy. Um, this is something that's very commonly thought of when, especially when somebody starts realizing that well, life insurance designed the way you're talking about for infinite banking is building up equity in a life insurance product and then borrowing against it. Oh, that's really similar to building up equity in my house and taking out a HELOC or a home equity loan and borrowing against the capital. And yes, you could say the strategies are very similar with a few differences. And I'll just cover them very simplistically here for the sake of discussion. In a HELOC, the challenge or in a house, if you're building up equity, the challenge here is that two things. You have to ask the bank for permission to get your equity. So it's a possibility that if you lost your job or your income was down or the economy was down and you were at risk of losing your job or for any other factor that the bank sees you unfit of taking capital and unable to pay it back, they're going to say, you know, I'm not going to give you that equity. I'm not going to extend that HELOC to you. And in that case, Sure, it's your money in the in the four walls of your house, but it's not really your money because they have the authority to say no. That's one piece. The other piece is that if the market does drop, and this is not in our control, I'm not saying that it will drop. I'm saying that if it does drop and you do not have the strength to hold up the value of your own property, you could be in a position where your equity, maybe it was $200,000 in your house, Due to no fault of your own, the equity evaporates because the value of your house vanishes. The, that does not happen over in a whole life policy. So the first one is that when you ask for a loan from a life insurance policy or from your life insurance company against your cash value, what happens is they contractually guarantee that they will provide you that capital. You do not have to qualify. You don't have to prove to them that you're going to pay it back. And they don't see you as creditworthy or uncreditworthy in order to make a decision to extend that loan to you they provide you the loan. Secondly, your cash value dollar amount, whatever it is, it's $200,000. That is not going to evaporate in any way and become $100,000 or zero inside your policy. So that's the difference between using a HELOC and using life insurance. Bruce, anything else you want to add on to that? Yeah. I mean, I simply, I mean, you, you did a great job. Uh, I don't know why I have to have discussions with this about people because Go do it. You know, <laughs> if that's what you want, go do the HELOC or the line of credit against your house. Uh, it's not the same thing. It's because of what you said, the guarantees. I'm going to just reiterate a story I've told a couple times in the podcast. In the 2009 crash of the Great Recession, I had a client who had overfunded his 
well, not overfunded, but funded his 401k to the max, funded his wife's 401k to the mat, mat, max, had very little, <clears throat> had a very little uh, cash available and savings because he had also um, paid off his home, which is about a $400,000 home. He was using cash to pay for the University of Missouri for his daughter, his two daughters, actually. And then one daughter graduated, was going to have a wedding. So he was paying cash for all the wedding and he had very little money in the bank. Uh, he was 52 or 53 years old. The crash came. Uh, he lost his job. His wife lost her job. <clears throat> and uh, he, he couldn't get his money out of his 401k without penalty. He went to the bank to get a home equity line of credit. They said, okay, what is your monthly income? Well, I don't have monthly income. I just, I just lost my job. And they said, well, we're not going to even fill out an application because you won't qualify. Mm. And he said, but I paid extra all these years and now you won't give me my money back. And they said, yes, that's the way. Because they also, they don't want to be in the real estate business and they have contracts. Their contract is you take money from the HELOC, you have to pay us a certain amount back every month. So those are just things that, hey, if you want to do it, <clears throat> you want to take on the additional risk, go do it. But they're not the same apples to apples. Bruce, I feel like I um, almost want to cry when you share that story. It's very unfortunate to look at something like that in retrospect and say, oh my goodness, this actually happened to somebody who was doing all the right things that society tells us to do. And thought that they were in a really secure position and that it turned out not to be. And oh, Rachel, it's even worse than that because the, 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 the emotional stress that he was under at the time thinking he failed his family, he couldn't mm. pay the tuition, the university of Missouri, he couldn't pay his daughter's um, wedding, the, the, the rest of the wedding bill. Oh, he gosh. then had to take money out of a 401k and then pay the additional 10% uh, penalty. And then on top of all that, he went to work at a local grocery store. He was an accountant for a major corporation, and the only work he could get was actually bagging groceries. So it was an emotional, it was emotional turmoil on the family at the time. And this is what we talk about all the time: is that you know having good money habits also allows you to live the best emotional life that you can possibly have. Mm -hmm. And having money that's in your control, control. and. That's the problem with thinking you're in control when you have your money in the four walls of the house. It's unfortunately not in your control and neither is money in a qualified plan. And so that's why we talk so much about having cash that's not just cash in a net worth position and not even just cash flow, but having money that's in your control. All right, so let's go to number 11. I'm not sure I make enough money. I think this is a question that we see really commonly, and I think we have done a really good job of <clears throat> articulating the value and the benefits of infinite banking, which makes it very attractive to anybody who has good money habits or wants to grow wealth or is starting a business or is in a position of saying, I really want to take ownership of my financial life. And it is very attractive for somebody to say, I want to do this strategy. I'm not sure I make enough money. I'm not sure I'm saving enough. I'm not sure I have enough to get started. And so here's what I would say to that. If you are thinking about you need a certain income amount, you really don't need a certain income amount to start infinite banking. What you need is a cash savings amount per month. This means good money habits that you are saving a portion of your income that usually we want to say in the ballpark of $1,000 a month that you are saving consistently. That would be kind of like a floor minimum. Can you get started with a little less than that? A little. But ultimately, what you want to do is think about the money habit, not so much what product you're using. So here's the thing. If you're in a position right now where you say, look, all I can save is 20 bucks a month, then save your $20 per month. Don't feel any shame in doing that. Build that savings in the bank because that's going to be the best thing for you, either the bank or a safe or somewhere in your backyard. Get it somewhere where you can access and use that money. Don't think I've got 20 bucks. I need to invest it. I have $40. I need to invest it. Don't put it in a position of risk. Put it in a position of safety where you can access and use it. So safety and liquidity. Think about those as much as possible and continue building that habit. Maybe that $20 a month turns into 50 a month or 200 or 500 or 6,000. And when you get to a position of your 
saving a good portion of your income, whatever your income is. I've seen people with what would be described as low income who are saving more than half of their income because they have really good money habits. And I've seen people with really high incomes that save absolutely nothing. So it really doesn't matter how much you make. It matters what your money habits are. And um, that's that's what I would share there. Bruce, is there any um, thing else that you'd like to add? Yeah, and, and, and 1,000 is a, a, a target that we've just noticed over our, our careers that once a person gets there, um, they can sustain that. Um, I'm not saying that a person that's saving two or $300 a month can't do this, but they really have to show that they can sustain that because we do not want to put them into any position that they are stressed out about yes. a monthly premium payment. Although if we do a good job of educating them, we can actually show them that if they get it capitalized for a couple of years, missing one or two payments is not that big a deal because mm-hmm. life comes up. But um, if you have $1,000 a month, we've actually just noticed that people have built that up either from the income side or the or the debt side paying out, they actually have sustained that for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy emotionally to make these types of commitments. The last thing before we move on, I would say if if you are in a position where you're saving something, but not as much as you'd like to be or not as much as your target, please do not feel that you are any less than. Please don't feel like we're talking down to you in any way. Everybody starts somewhere. And there was a time in my life that I was barely saving anything either. We all have times that we go through that are challenging. Build the money habit. What you can absolutely do is you can start and you can prop open the door for your possibility to use infinite banking in the future by putting in a convertible term policy right now that is very low cost. Now, it's not going to do any infinite banking for you. It's not going to build any cash value at all. But what it does is it locks in your current health status for your underwriting. I almost said underrating. Your rating for underwriting. And what that does is if you're super young and healthy right now and you put in a million or $2 million term policy in place for yourself, then when your cash flow situation changes, you can break off a piece of that. And I'm thinking of a Kit Kat bar. <laughs> and you can um, turn that into a permanent or a whole life insurance policy. So you could say, well, let me take $100,000 of that death benefit and turn that over into a whole life insurance policy. And so you allow yourself the, prob- the possibility to do that by locking in the convertible term right now. So absolutely an easy step for anybody. And while we're saying this right here, death benefit is so important that we always recommend putting your maximum life insurance in place as much as you can qualify for. So probably everyone should have term insurance in addition to their whole life insurance as well to make sure that you're maximizing that death benefit. All right, next. I'm just getting started with my business or I'm in another major life transition. Bruce, do you want to say anything about this right here? Well, I mean, it's several things we've already talked about today. It's the same thing. Um, If you're not, this comes down to, um, we've had Mike McCallowitz on the program before, and he talks about profit first in your business. And uh, one of the places you could store your profit first account is in the whole life insurance contracts. Mm-hmm. So if you do follow good habits, even starting a business, watching your overhead, Mike would say that you you should be looking at profit from day one. And he's and none of this, uh, oh, it's going to take me three to five years to turn a profit. Um, and he, he if you look him up, he'll explain why that is possible. But, you know, getting the, getting the convertible term in place would be a good thing for somebody that's just getting started. And, um, they're, you know... Nelson has said this, and I've said this on the podcast, the best time to start one of these is 70 years ago, and the next best time to start is right now. Um, and so just figure that you're going to always say that there's no no best time to get this mm-hmm. started. And if you continue to say that, you will never get it started. You know, it's the same if you're starting a family, having kids, uh, going back to school, starting a job, starting a new career, anything. There's no perfect time. Just do it. All right. So um, next, 13. I think I might be too old. Bruce, let's talk about this one. Yeah, well, I did one on my father at age 71. Um, that's another podcast, but I encourage uh, children and I to do uh, 
on their on their parents. It's you have to have the right design and you have to have the right uh, conversations with your not only your parents but with the insurance company to be able to do this. I've had uh, a person as high as seventy six do this, and a lot of people uh, think, well, the cost of insurance is going to be so high that it can't possibly work. But what they do not realize is the way that they actually design the dividend payouts. When a company declares a dividend such as maybe 5%, that dividend is actually for the entire pool of the policyholders, all the way down from a newborn, all the way to somebody that's living to 121. And the actuaries have actually designed this so that because of the um, time value of money, in other words, $20 on a newborn in 120 years is going to grow to X, they need to make the dividend payout to an older person higher um, so that dividends to an older person are actually greater. So it offsets a lot of the, of the cost of insurance. It doesn't do it proportionally necessarily, but it still is a strategy that a person can explore. And then the final thing, if you're trying to make infinite banking infinite, and that means go from one generation to the next, mm -hmm. it would make much more sense to place the death benefit part of it on the person that's closer to death. And that may sound harsh and it may sound like I have no feelings on this, but I talk to this about with my clients all the time. Say, oh, I want to do it on my kids because my kids actually will get less cost of insurance. And I say, yeah, but what you don't realize is they're also going to get fewer of, or lower percentage of the dividends. And if you actually want this to benefit them in the future, putting it on you will actually give them a death benefit sooner and cash to you sooner mm -hmm. in their lifetime. So, um, yes, which is, I feel like that's a really profound piece of this idea of, am I too old? Um, so one thing I will add here is that if you absolutely cannot get whole life insurance, which never mind, we're just going to go ahead and talk about that next. And then um, we've actually got some comments that are around this idea of insuring someone other than you, specifically your kids or grandkids. So I'm really hoping we'll be able to get um, time for those. So I'll just say Nolan, James, um, Sheffy, Jay, please thank you for your comments and please keep them coming out. We'll try to get the, to those in just a moment. All right. So number 14, what if I'm not in perfect health? And I think this one comes up all too often. Somebody says, okay, this is actually a life insurance product, which means it goes through medical underwriting. And I love the concept. My finances are in the right position. My age is in the right position. I can absolutely use this all day long. I absolutely want to put this in place, but oh no, here's the hurdle. I have diabetes. I've had a stroke. I've had cancer. I've had something that now is this huge giant hurdle or this speed bump on our way to infinite banking. What do we do about that? Bruce, let's talk about it from the insurance company's perspective and then how sometimes maybe people think that they might have medical challenges that can also be, um, maybe they're not as big of a deal for getting insurance as they might think. Yeah. For, um, first of all, um, high blood pressure, cholesterol, very common. Uh, people think, well, I won't qualify because I have high blood pressure. I have high cholesterol. Um, as long as you're on medication, insurance companies really don't treat that much differently than a person that has perfect numbers. And I tell people why, well, there's two reasons for it. Why statistically you're probably going to live a normal life. That's why they get, they're giving you medication. Um, the second reason is, is that and this is a little bit of nuance here, but uh, I've, I've heard this from underwriters. They like it when people actually go to the doctor and check on their health. And it makes sense when you think about it. It's like, Oh, you care enough about your life that you're actually going to the doctor, you're getting medication to control your, to control your ailments. What they don't like is when a person has ailments and they don't even know it. Because, mm. And why they don't, they don't know it? Because they don't regularly go to a doctor. Um, and that has come up when, with, in my career where um, I've had underwriters say, okay, right now we can't give a person a policy and you need to tell them to get to the doctor as soon as possible because their blood numbers are very poor. And, and um, this is something that is, is, is something that a person obviously needs to take care of. Now, 
if you're not, if you have something that's more like you've had some heart issues, um, and even heart issues, if you've had them and you've had them over fibers, they look at it differently. If you had cancer and if you've had it uh, in remission for over five years, you still can, you still can uh, qualify. Let's say that you don't qualify uh, at all. Then you can look at other people that you have an insurable interest, whether it's your children, your spouse, um, your parents in some cases, a business partner, um, somebody that's in, in, in charge of your trust. That's what I've done one with a, a lady that was actually the, the trustee of a trust for another person. Um, those are all avenues that you can do. Even if it's not an insurable interest, because uh, as you get to a, adult children, um, insurance companies don't see that you need insurance on adult children. What you can do is you can actually have the adult children qualify on their own uh, financial and medical uh, ability, and then have an agreement with the adult children that they will change the ownership because once you have a issued policy, the owner can reassign the ownership and beneficiary to anyone they want. So they could reassign the ownership to another person. I ha I've done this on several occasions. Matter of fact, we have uh, three people from California or three daughters from a man from California that he wants to do that right now. They're all in their 40s. And he has he wants to teach them how to do good money habits. Mm -hmm. So he wants to set this up and do a wealth transfer in this particular situation. So they're just going to do it on their own. And then they're going to change ownership to the father eventually when it's issued. Very, very interesting. So, so all of this is being said that your health condition might not be as bad as you think it is in terms of the insurance company's perspective of, are you insurable or not? It's possible that you would be rated, which would be your cost of insurance, maybe a little bit higher, which that still does not disqualify you, but that could be something that we or your um, advisor team would explore. And then there also is the possibility of insuring somebody else who you have insurable interest with. So lots of ways to navigate around this. So please, 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 if you're in a position of saying, I want to do this, but my health is the problem, please don't see that as a brick wall. That is something that we can often find a way to navigate around. All right. Number 15, we're coming close to the end, and I think we still will have time to get to the comments. I have a bunch of cash right now, but I don't want to commit to ongoing funding. This is a fun one as well. I think we have a lot of people who say, hey, can I do a lump sum? I've got $500,000 right now. I want to pay it all into a policy, never pay a premium again. Um, and so here's the thing. When you're thinking about whole life insurance, this is a long-term commitment. I would like you to envision or imagine that whole life insurance is more like you're getting married. And the reason you want to think about that is that you are committing to something that will serve you and you will be committed to it for a long time going forward into the future. And the goal is that you're going to marry this thing and it's going to be with you until you are parting the earth. And instead, we can't think of it as a one night stand. This isn't like, hey, I hooked up with life, with life insurance and now I'm gone. I'm on to something else. You really need to think about it as something that is a long-term commitment. And the reason is that life insurance, especially used in this way, a whole life insurance policy with a death benefit that pays out whenever you die is not something you can think of as a get rich quick scheme. It's not a flash in the pan. It's not a magic bullet. It's not something that is just a one time. It is something that will serve you for a long time. Bruce, I know you have a lot to add to that, but I wanted to um, share that first. I mean, the bottom line is uh, you used to be able to do this. You can't do it anymore because of IRS rules. Um, and um, there are ways that you can structure um, your habits or the positioning of your money that kind of accomplishes the same thing. So let's say you have 500000 You could put 100000 in the first year. There, every company has something they call a premium deposit fund. And then every year you can just sweep the, another hundred thousand out of the premium deposit fund into your <clears throat> into your actual contract. Um, 
but as far as putting all 500,000 in and getting the same benefits, it's just not possible because of IRS regulations. Can you buy a single premium life insurance policy for $500,000? Yes, but it becomes a modified endowment contract. And there's some times when you want to do this for estate planning. Sometimes you may even want to do this because you like the, the guarantees and you don't mind if you're going to access this uh, cash and pay taxes on the growth. But most of the time, people want to do or, or, or have all the advantages of the structure of these particular policies. So um, that's basically the bottom line. Very, very well said. All right. Um, I will also say on that, that if you are spreading a lump sum over a number of years, talk with your advisor and figure out how many years you can spread that over because there's something that we're going to mention in just a minute called reduced paying up that you might be able to squeeze that into less than a hundred years of funding a policy. Right. Okay. Number 16, we're coming close to the finish line. We've got less than six minutes here. I might run into a jam in the future and not be able to pay premiums. Now, this is another common one. In fact, I remember early in my career talking with somebody who was thinking about funding a whole life insurance policy, but remembered in the past, they'd had a friend with a whole life policy that couldn't pay their premiums, came to my friend and said, could you please loan me money to pay for my life insurance policy? And my friend had such a visceral reaction to that saying, I never want to be in a situation where I'm having to beg or borrow money to pay premiums for something that I own for a life insurance policy. So that was a really challenging situation that he learned from. Now, here's the thing. You absolutely have flexibility with a properly designed whole life insurance policy. And we've done an entire episode on this. We're going to just touch on it briefly today. If you come into a situation where you've funded your policy, say, say you funded it fully for three years, and now you're in a situation where you needed your extra capital to do something else and you're not able to make your full premium payment, there's options. So one option is that the base premium is usually the required payment. The paid-up addition rider is something you want to pay to continue to grow your cash value, but is not fully required as a required premium payment. What that means is if you needed the flexibility, you can fund just the base premium and a little bit of the PUA or a portion of the PUA going into that year. Another option is to take a loan against your cash value to pay for your premiums in that year. You might say, why in the world would I take a policy loan to pay my premiums? Well, you have the cash value that's available to use for anything that you choose. And if in a particular year, you have $100,000 of cash value and $20,000 of premium due, you are welcome to take a policy loan to pay that premium. Now know that that's going to increase your lien, the, the, the loan amount. It's going to accrue interest and you're going to want to pay that back. You might be in a position then in the future where you have cash coming in and you're saying, well, now do I fund my premiums or do I repay my policy loan? And that's a decision we can absolutely walk you through to figure out what's the best way. Then you also have the op option or opportunity to reduce pay up. And this you have to do within requirements. And it's usually within this seven pay mech test limit. So you absolutely want to have your advisor on board and talking you through when to do this. We've had people who say, I've been paying into a policy for seven years or 10 years. Now I'm ready to retire. I'm in a position where I don't want to make premium payments going forward anymore, but I don't want to give up the policy either. And you have an option usually to take cash value and figure out how much death benefit your current cash value would purchase flat out and have nothing left outstanding. Like you, like if it was a house you'd paid for fully as opposed to having an outstanding mortgage and you can reduce your death benefit without reducing your cash value in a method of reduced paying up. So Bruce, I don't know if you would explain any of those maybe differently than I did. I, you probably would. Anything you would like to add or clarify on that? No, it's just that there's just a variety of ways you can pay the, you can pay your premiums or even skip paying a premium depending on how much cash value you have. You can actually pay from policy values. That's that could be another whole show, but there's a lot of flexibility. Awesome, awesome. So let's go ahead and um, really quick because there's a question that uh, related to that is how often can you make deposits into your life insurance policy? I will answer this. This was Sheffy J all day. Um, I would say you can pay 
monthly, quarterly, or annually. And then if you have a policy loan, so say you have an outstanding loan currently on your policy, you can pay back every two days if you wanted to into your policy to repay that loan. Um, I don't know if that answers well, the also, question. You can also you can also pay semi-annually. You missed that oh, one. I, I'm sorry, yes. But that's that's no problem. Um, and if you have not if you have not paid your tire uh, contract writer of PUAs, you can actually catch up. And yes. put money in at any time. We we have people. I just dealt with this yesterday. Uh, one of my clients said, "Hey, I have five thousand dollars extra in my savings account. I want to pay some more into my PUAs." And so they sent a check in, just at random, to put more money into their PUAs. So very 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 flexible. Okay. Lastly, last question we have here, and I know Bruce, you only have two minutes. So last question. No one I know is doing this. What I want to say here is that those who are using infinite banking. I know, and Bruce knows, all of us in this space know that we probably are still a minority of the general population. And the reason really is that those that understand this concept, those that say, I'm going to let go of society's view that whole life insurance is bad, and I'm going to go past whatever my parents or my friends or everything I've heard, they're... Um, conventional wisdom. And I'm going to say, I want to figure out for myself how to do something differently. If you're in that position and you're exploring infinite banking, you probably are wondering why not everyone is using this. It's probably because maybe they have not figured, they have not chosen to go down the path of learning and knowledge on that. And what I will say is the wealthy have been using this for over a hundred years. And those that understand how this concept works are profoundly gaining significant advantage from doing so. Yeah. I had a, I had another producer, insurance producer, once said, uh, "Why isn't everybody doing this?" He said, "Because I haven't talked to everybody yet." And well, that's because our our reach isn't big enough yet. And as soon as everyone is paying attention to our channel, then they'll be doing it too, right? Right. And so here here's a here's the bottom line: uh, insurance companies are conservative. They don't spend extra money on advertising to talk about how great this is, because they're trying to get a return, uh, a better return for the dividend. What I also find is people that do this are very conservative in nature, so they don't go around uh, blaring about how they do whole life insurance. I do find people that do investments, and once again, I'm an investment advisor, so I hear this all the time. Oh, they they brag about how much they made on Facebook, or they brag about how much they made on because it's it's a good story um, in the cocktail circus circuit. What you'll never find them doing, though, and I shouldn't say never, that's an absolute, what you've, you'll find them very, uh, not very often say, oh, I lost, you know, uh, 30% in the stock market last year because they don't want to admit that they lost money. Um, you don't have to worry about that with whole life. But you also, people aren't confident enough to say, oh, I'm going to be getting three and a half to four and a half to 5% long-term internal rate of return tax-free because that's just not exciting to tell people. And, and they're afraid, and, and especially in our society today, where people uh, have a tendency to have no respect for individual opinions, they're afraid somebody is saying, oh, you're stupid for putting your money there when I've been putting my money in the stock market the last 10 years, and I've got a 12% rate of return. Well, it's 12% that is at risk, 12% may not be sustainable, and 12% was taxable. Mm -hmm. So people just, they don't want to have to explain that to people, so they just quietly put their money into this guaranteed product and then just move on with their lives. Yes. I find the people that are doing it are probably less likely to be bragging about what they're getting right. to other people anyways, and more concerned with just quietly doing what is right for them. And yeah. hmm, maybe we could all learn from that. So, um, all right. That is going to cap us off today. I snapshot it. I took a picture of the rest of the comments. Thank you guys so much for being with us on the show today. Your comments are very refreshing and um, we will be addressing those in future episodes as well. So please stay tuned to that. And in closing, if you like this video, please comment um, in, the, in the comments and I would love for you to like it, subscribe to our channel. And if you want to learn more about privatized banking, we have a quick and easy guide over at privatizedbankingsecrets.com. You can easily get, and if you want to book an advisor, blah, 
if you want to book a meeting with our advisors right now on the calendar, you can go to themoneyadvantage.com slash calendar, and you can talk with our advisors about how to implement this strategy in your own personal life. And in closing, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.